Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have now reached 30,000 feet. Use all your electronic devices and your laptop. Uh, series called Altitude Adjustment, and uh, the tagline of it is, your attitude affects your altitude. It, it's really based upon an instrument that's in, in front and center in the middle of, a, uh, of the dashboard of a plane uh, that is the attitude instrument, and the attitude tells you whether or not you're uh, rising or if you're crashing, and the hope is that as Christians, as Christ followers, in the midst of a world where there is uh, chaos all around us, that we would rise above the fray, so to speak. That we would rise above that and we would be people that are not better than the world or uh, better than other people, but that we would just be above that. That, that, there would be, uh, that the world would look to us for answers because we're not caught down into the uh, the chaos. And so we're going to continue our time in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this message uh, this morning is dedicated to my wife. Uh, it's on anger. And no, I'm just kidding. She, she leaned over and said, I think I need the message today. Um, no, we're, we're going to read out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. And uh, some of this will be familiar to you. If you've not read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, at least some of it will be familiar. You have heard, it says, uh, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire." So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, uh, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this morning I want us to talk about anger. There are really two ways that we can approach this subject of anger. We can approach it with uh, this idea that after reading this scripture, we could have this practical kind of level approach to how do we deal with our anger in the everyday? What does it look like for us to operate in this life and in this world uh, managing our anger? We could have a small seminar on how to deal with anger on a day-to-day -day level. My question to you this morning, is there anyone here that has never dealt with anger? No? Okay, so we've all been angry 
at one point in our life. It's good to know that there's no perfect people here uh, this morning. I'm sure some of you, you're like, I've never been angry, uh, but we can't hold you accountable for that. So there are a lot of scriptures, if you, if you look throughout the Bible, you'll find a lot of scriptures that deal with anger on a very practical level. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 being one of them. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Paul is saying, listen, it's really easy to sin in your anger. And he goes on and he kind of puts this time limit on it. He says, don't be eternally angry. Don't let it fester in your heart. And and if you do, if you let it fester in your heart, if you allow anger to go on and continue on in your life, what you will find is it goes on to say that the devil will have a foothold in your life. But this morning, I'm not convinced that Jesus is here in this passage of Scripture really addressing these practices or these practical ways to deal with our anger with our anger the approach that I want us to take this morning is is not this one of a practical approach I want us to look at anger at the very heart level and that we would recognize what it is when we get angry and what happens in us when we are angry I want us to, to look under the rug a little bit because I think that there are socially acceptable things uh, in regard to sin that we can get away with. And I want us to just kind of pull back the rug and see some of the things that maybe we haven't seen before. See, very little of what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount is about how to go to heaven. It's really not about that. What Jesus is after here is he's after the stuff that's going on in the here and now. We can remember Jesus' prayer, as I prayed earlier, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to suggest this morning that Jesus is trying to get his kingdom down here. That this whole section of scripture that we're going through, this entire series, is what it looks like when God's people begin to live out in the dimension of his kingdom. That that in our day-to-day, we begin to live out the things that he's addressing. He's describing what it looks like when we do heaven here and now. So there are three really big ideas that I want us to look at this morning in regard to anger. The first is this. It is the virtue of anger. You could say it a different way, the goodness of anger. Many of us will not uh, recognize that anger is actually something of a virtue. You'll notice that when Jesus finishes this section, he's really quick to realize, we can be really quick to realize that Jesus is referring to an age-old passage that's called the Ten Commandments. And he says something, he, he says, you will remember this, and then there's this, I believe, conjunction in the middle that says, but, but I say to you, he says, you'll remember that, I, that it's been said, you should not murder, and by the way, you shouldn't. But what I want to say to you is I want to point out something at a heart level, at a deeper level that goes beyond just the minimum of don't 
kill someone. I want to point out that Jesus never in his text, in this text, he never says that anger is bad. And it might be the first time in in your history of being a Christian and being in church that you hear that, that it's okay to actually be angry. I want to suggest that anger is actually good and it's, it's important in a way. And what Jesus is doing here in this passage is he's building this progression of thought. He's building kind of this culmination of what anger can do if we allow it to continue on in our hearts. In verse 22, it says that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I should point out that most commentators are not in agreement in this. That that Jesus isn't really necessarily talking so much about God's judgment towards us, but that the judgment we will receive is from other people. That That inevitably, when you get angry, you are going to have to deal with the ramifications of that anger with other people. He goes on, he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You, you'll, you'll go to litigation on this when you insult someone. And whoever says you fool, and he uses a word here called rakah. Whoever says rakah will be liable to the hell of fire. And I'm going to talk about that word here in just a moment. I want you to see that, that the progression that Jesus is establishing here in this text is, is if you have anger, there will be judgment. If you insult someone, you could end up in court. But if you call someone rakah, you might be going to hell, which is a pretty big leap from court to hell. So there's something of of importance in this language that Jesus is using when he uses that word in particular, this progression that takes place. But there's nothing in the text that indicates that Jesus is categorically saying that anger is a bad thing. But what Jesus is doing is he's giving us boundaries to anger. In the Bible, there are 455 references to the emotion of anger. 375 of those references are of God's anger. God gets angry in the Bible. Anger is actually a part of God's attribute. It's part of his character. God gets angry. Moses got angry. If you remember Moses coming down from the mountain after receiving kind of the reference that Jesus is talking about, the Ten Commandments, he comes down from the mountain after this encounter with God and he sees God's people all not celebrating the living God but celebrating a false God and he gets angry. Paul in the New Testament, he got really angry, like white hot angry when he's writing to the Galatians to Uh, to the church in Galatia, it's almost as if as he's writing, you can picture his hand shaking and the lead breaking because he's just, he's writing because they had turned from grace into legalism and, and Paul's angry about that. Jesus is angry. 
Jesus got angry when he walks into the temple and he sees a bunch of people who have, have taken the religious tradition of God and they're perverting it. And what does he do? He turns tables over. I think sometimes we read the scriptures and, and we think that, that Jesus is coming in with a sweater vest and, and some loafers and he comes in and he's just like, hey, let's close up the tables. No, he comes in and, and he's flipping tables. He's angry. Now, if Jesus is saying that anger is bad, then he has a problem on his hands. Because then Jesus is a hypocrite. But Jesus isn't a hypocrite. See, anger in the Bible is an attribute of God's righteousness. But the problem that you and I have is we are horrible with anger. We stink at it. Anger is a, a good thing, but you and I, we, we don't know how to live within the boundaries of anger. And it doesn't matter if, if you're a Christian or not. You inherently have something that rises up in you when you see something that's evil, don't we? Like when, when you see that, that people are mistreated or you see children abused, you see people talking down to one another or whatever, there's something of an anger that rises up within you. And it's because you've been created in the image of God to get angry about that kind of stuff. A God that looks at the world and doesn't get angry about those kinds of things isn't a just God. But he cares. He cares about you. He cares about injustice. He cares about the things that are going on in our life. He's not indifferent. He's not separated out from us. But our problem is that we are sinners. We're sinners that often don't know how to handle this attribute of anger that we've been given. In the Bible, there are some things that need boundaries, but there are other things that don't need boundaries. For example, if you think about it, the Bible never puts boundaries around joy. Jesus doesn't ever say to us, I want you to be joyful, but not that joyful. Right? We'll, we'll probably never attend. I mean, in the history of your life, you will never attend a joy management class. Right? We, we don't go to those things. We, we don't go to court and they're like, well, I'm sentencing you to joy management because you were just a little over the top with your joy. The, there are some things that need boundaries, but then there are other things that don't need boundaries. Because anger is an attribute of God that we love to take to the, to the next level. If we don't have an appropriate relationship with anger, eventually it will get to the point where we'll walk around and we will say fool. We will say rakah. And when we get to that point, we may experience the danger of the fire of hell. See, anger is a good thing. It's a virtue. In fact, anger is a healthy way for marriage to exist. Again, something you're probably not attuned to hearing about in church. But let me explain. I think that probably needs a little bit of explanation because some of you are nudging each other. See, I told you I could be angry at you. 
Pastor Ryan said it was okay. If a husband uh, comes to a wife and um, confesses an addiction in their life, uh, I've had this happen on multiple occasions in my office where the confession takes place in my office, but but there's a confession of an addiction of whether, you know, it's drug abuse or alcoholism or pornography or whatever the, the case may be, there's this, this confession. Maybe there's a, a confession of an affair or something of those, of those things. There's really two ways that, that the wife can respond in that situation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago where we talked about how sin actually affects more than one person, right? I don't know if you realize this, but, but we oftentimes will say, and we've justified, and this is something that our culture has kind of perpetuated, and, and I'm not angry at our culture for it as much as it's just, it's absolutely not true. It's wrong. It's a wrong way of thinking that would say that, I, that my sin is, is only affecting me, that, uh, that, that what I'm doing or the decisions that I'm making actually only affect me. That, that's just wrong thinking. There's, I mean, we even perpetuate that notion. We say things like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, that's not true. What happens in Vegas stays with you. And, and, and you can say, well, I'm not hurting anyone around me. And I, I would just argue, well, you, okay, so let's just take a step back. And at the minimum, if your sin isn't hurting other people around you, your sin is killing you. It's causing damage to your heart and, and, and it's hurting your mind. But in the case of confession, oftentimes the one that's hearing the confession, it's more difficult to sometimes hear the confession, to give the confession. And the one hearing the confession, they feel like they have to respond with one of two options. The first option is this, sheer rage and anger and condemnation. And the second option is this overtly forgiveness and lifting up the rug and sweeping it under there and pretending that it didn't happen and hoping that it all goes away. But there's problems with both of those. If you respond to someone who is honest about their brokenness, someone who's honest about their sin, and if you respond to them with rage, with condemnation, I can assure you uh, that it will be very rare that that person will ever come back to you with any sense of honesty about their life. But if you respond with sweeping it under the rug, if you respond with this kind of overt grace, then you're enabling. So what we have to do is we have to refuse that there are only two options, that there's actually a third option, a Jesus way. That you expected to hear in church this morning. That there's a, a third option, a Jesus way. And I think it's interesting that Jesus died between two thieves. Because there's always two bad options and a really good option in the middle. So how does Jesus deal with sin? He gets angry, but simultaneously 
He's gracious. If you think about the example of, of the woman who's caught in adultery and she's drug out of the home and thrown, presumably naked, into a street and thrown down to the ground among the religious leaders in front of Jesus and, and, and they're asking Jesus to condemn this woman and Jesus' response to this woman is, you know, where are your accusers? After he kind of calls them out, he says, is there anyone left? And she says, no. And, he, and then he gives her instructions. He says, go and sin no more. And again, I think we, we read scriptures at times and we read things like this in particular, this situation where Jesus is kind of this mild, meek-mannered person who's who doesn't have, show any sort of emotion, and he's just like, okay, you know, young lady, go and sin no more. But I'm guessing that there was a sense of anger in the sense of first she was pulled out of her home and thrown into the street. So anger about the sin, anger that these religious leaders are condemning her and treating her this way, but then there's this graciousness that says you've been forgiven. See, anger in a marriage says that there are boundaries that say what's okay and what's not okay. But the minute we do anger, without grace, we lose it. Anger can be really good. Anger can cause missionaries to go overseas because they want to reach a people group that's never heard the message of Jesus. Anger can be good. It can lead people to start nonprofits and bring food awareness to parts of our world that, that don't have access to food. Anger can be good. We just oftentimes don't know how to put boundaries around it, which brings me to the second point, that anger is a virtue, but secondly, there is a danger to anger. Jesus is giving us this progression that if you are angry and insult, then you begin to say, if you say, raka, you fool. When your unchecked anger gets worse and worse and worse, you get to the point to where you begin treating people as if they're nobody. You begin treating people with raka. This word, rakah, is an Aramaic word. It's interesting because it doesn't really, uh, it, it, it doesn't fit in the sense that the New Testament is, is mostly written in Greek. And so you have this Aramaic word that Jesus chooses to use in this case. And, and it's really of, of immense depth to it. It has severe consequences. The word rakah means empty-headed, stupid. Worthless, good for nothing. Rakah is complete and utter contempt for someone else. It should be pointed out to say that Rakah is actually uh, the way that it's pronounced. Rakah, Rakah, is actually as if you are spitting on someone else. It's to say that someone is a no one. To treat a person as a non-person. It's treating a person with such, with such contempt and disregard. And when you get to that point, where the people around you are not really people at all, when you get to the point where you treat people 
as if you were spitting in them on them or calling them stupid. I would suggest that you are in deep, deep trouble. There are all kinds of rakah. You can really never murder anybody and still be murdering someone. That's the premise of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder someone, but you could still be murdering someone with your words, with how you treat them. We do all sorts of things like in our nation and in our culture that embody rakah. And what are What is our emotional response to what's going on in the world? Regardless of your position, your political bent, the way that you view the circumstances and the social dynamics of what's going on in our country today, the question that I have for all of us is, how are we treating the people that are different than us? We cannot forget that every single person is someone that Jesus came to love and to die for. We can't forget that we're talking about human beings. And yet we play these games with each other where we say that you're less, you're less, you're less than. All the while forgetting that Jesus Christ came to love every single one of us. And we are Loved and not because we are righteous. But as we sang earlier, we are loved because we are all sinners in the hands of a loving God. We are all valued by our Creator because He made us. Racism is recall. See, we'll never we'll never progress to the point as a society, as human beings, we'll never get to a place where we don't need Jesus in our life. And I just think it's important for us, even, even in this moment, to just pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us of, of recall. Can we, in fact, let's just do that right now. I don't want to take too much time here because I got lots more to say. Holy Spirit, would you would you show us those areas of our life where maybe we've allowed, we've progressed in our anger, in the in the heat, in the height of emotion, in the midst of this craziness that we live in. God, would you show us those areas in our marriage, in our relationships, where we've allowed rakah to enter in? Forgive us. Forgive us for being people who would not love people the way that you do. In Jesus' name. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I did a wedding last night. Worst part of doing a wedding on a Saturday night is Sunday morning. I use a passage of scripture that uh, is familiar to many of us, and it's often quoted at weddings, not really necessarily in the right context, but 
but I use it to point out the fact that everyone at the wedding really has the opportunity to reevaluate what it is to actually love people. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, and in it, it says, the greatest of these is love. It, It also says that love is not proud. It's not proud that, that love and pride are mutually exclusive. They cannot live within one another. You can't love and see yourself above everyone else. Finally, there's the virtue in anger. There's a danger in anger. We weren't meant to be people who treat others with contempt. Think about Jesus, even in the, as he's, The night of his arrest, he washes the feet of the man who was going to sell him to the Roman soldiers. He he served him in this context. And I think sometimes in our minds, we think that if we serve people, it's an endorsement of their actions. And the reality is, is Jesus gives us such a great example of what it's like to serve someone, to love someone, but not endorse the actions of his betrayal. In a weird way, we have kind of diluted this idea of serving one another into this place of endorsement. That we find ourselves when we disagree with people that we can't even associate with them, we can't be around them, we can't love them, we can't talk with them because that would somehow be endorsing them or their beliefs. See, loving somebody is not because we agree or disagree. We love because We have first been loved by him. So the third thing here is there is a love in anger. Jesus is talking about the sixth commandment here. And and don't think that we can get off the hook by thinking if we don't murder people, we're doing it right. He says, yes, it's true. Thou shall not murder. But he says, He says this, he goes on to say that, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, settle your matters quickly. Jesus isn't just giving us, just living in a series of don'ts, like don't do this and don't do that. It's not as if we, as long as we don't do the don'ts, that we're somehow right with God. If I don't eat bacon, then I'm right with God. If I don't murder someone, I'm right with God. If I don't cuss, then I'm right with God. Jesus says that, that it's not the way to understand the law. It's, it was given to you for you not to just do or don't do a series of don'ts. I don't know what's right in that phrase but or wrong in that phrase. You don't murder your neighbor. Reconcile with people. Go settle your matters. Not murdering is kind of the baseline of love. If you're thinking to yourself, well, I have not murdered my neighbor yet, that's not love. It's a start. It's the baseline of love. We're all grateful that you have not murdered 
your neighbor. In a way, you're being a good neighbor by not murdering them. But it's the beginning. Are you reconciling with those that when you think about them, you get angry and hatred comes into your heart? See, don't begin with just not murdering. When Jesus turns over the table, when Moses got angry, when Paul got angry, do you think they did it because they're religious grumps? Or is it because they love? When I'm sitting with a couple that's struggling through a pain in their marriage, I'm really looking for one thing, and that one thing is anger. It's anger because the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. The opposite of love is indifference. I would rather see people in my office who are angry because they are passionate about their love for one another. Sometimes his love leads to anger when he disciplines and brings correction in our life. That is God's love for us. When God gets angry with me and you, it's because it's his response as a loving father. Think about your own kids. Think about those moments in which they just, they just dumb up. And there has to be correction and there has to be instruction. And you do it not because you hate your kids. You do it because you love them. You care about them. When we know that we have a God that disciplines and says hard things, when we know that that God ultimately loves us, it makes it a little bit more palatable to receive. It's interesting that in the garden, at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sin, God's response when he comes looking for them, his response is, where are you? Not how are you, where are you? And I wonder why. I wonder why he asked the question, where are you? Is it because he missed them? He misses his kids. And maybe there are some who have been very distant from their Heavenly Father. And I would say to you that he continues to say today, Where are you?